Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Retro Time Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Derek. Howdy, Derek. How's it going, man? Doing great, Jeremy. Just great. Splendid. Doing great. Just great. That's all you can ask for. End of Absolutely. the week. Yeah, end of the it's, week. We can start and we go out for pizza tonight, get mm. myself some pizza. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, I'm going on a little day trip with my wife tonight, today, tomorrow, whatever it is. Got the kids at home with the auntie, as it oh, were. Nice. So we got Give a little babysitting a action. Trip. How'd you oh, manage yeah, very that? Excited. I need to get my sister to move up here so I can have a babysitter. That's the trick, man. Convince them to move, and then you got right in the groove. That's what I say. You, you know, know what sucks? Do. We, uh, I had two dates scheduled uh, a couple weeks back. Well, two different weeks. And uh, our goddamn babysitter canceled both times. Different different people, too. We're not even the same person. So no dates for me. So you're a lucky man. Ugh. If you're listening, babysitter, knucklehead. Yeah, dang old knucklehead. Hate to see it. Speaking of knuckleheads, what are we talking about today, Derek? So, great lead in. Because generally, <laughs> generally, when we talk about new topics, uh, it's all centered around the activities of the knuckleheads that we work dang with. Dang old knuckleheads. And today is no exception, sir. No exception. I did want to kind of introduce the idea to you, Jeremy, uh, with a song. Okay, have you ever you ever listened Ooh. to um, Depeche Mode? Uh, once or twice, yeah. All right, you know that song, uh, "People Are People." People are people. Yep. All right. So, what about this as a little twist on it? Features are features, so why should it be? Features are features. <laughs> you and I should screw them up so oftenly. Oftenly. Oh, okay. I was gonna right, say. So I was thinking you were gonna say awfully. But oh, oftenly, yeah. I like that because it happens yeah. a lot. I like it. Yeah, yeah. I just want to make it sound good. So the topic I want to talk to you today about is, those words weren't in the right order, but we're just going to move forward with it. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. Features tend to be what are focused on on projects. New features. Give me the new stuff. Give me this, yep. you know, give me the new widget. Give me the new whatever. Not in, you know, this is not a uh, super insightful concept. But when we think about like the pressure for teams to push new features, a lot of times those teams have a sense of professionalism that they have to kind of put to the side, set things that they would normally do aside, and push forward and create those features, leaving a trail of messy code, poor documentation, um, Rap, uh, rushed implementations in their in its wake, you know, and I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit today about how to potentially avoid that. Okay, what that feeling is, where it comes from, and how we can think about it. Maybe we'll come up with a few analogies for our listeners here today. Oh, I can't wait. All right, so let's well, let's step back a minute and let's think about then. Uh, give me a, an example of how this has gone wrong, and then we can start to maybe pick it apart and see how we could have maybe avoided that. Absolutely, yeah. So, let's, let's take apart a general example. Um, let's say you have a web application. You might be building one right now. God help you. You've been working on it for a couple years, and you kind of know that there are some architectural issues. There's some things that you really want to clean up in the application. There's inconsistencies, the way uh, certain files are being used, certain classes in the application, or whatever it is, the, uh, the maybe the front-end library is out of date, you know, maybe the back-end, uh, you know, needs to be updated, or or some there's some security vulnerability you haven't addressed, but the business is pushing you, they're pushing you to implement a new feature, you need to add, let's call it the big red button, 
All right. Mm -hmm. So this application does two things. It prints out a lot of green balls, but the company's changing. They want to print out some red balls. Now you need a red button. All right. Uh, okay. All so right. So you'll still have the option to do the green, but now you want to add an option for red. Mm-hmm. Okay. The way you've implemented the system, you got to copy all the code for the green button, and now you have basically double the code base. you got the red button code base and the green button code base if you, if you go with the current architecture of the system. Or you could spend a little time, maybe uh, you know, a few weeks, a month, sorting it all out. Structuring it so that the green button and the blue button, or the green button and the red button, sorry, are essentially uh, implemented as kind of one concept and, and there's less, you know, complication and complexity in the code. Very generic concept here, but the idea is that there's the code itself, the, uh, the, the application is in disarray and you're being pressured to implement something and you know that you can't do it in a way that's appropriate to you as a professional software person. Professionals may be a strong, long, strong way to put it for the what we do. But, um, <laughs> well, you're getting paid though, right? As a paid software person. So um, that's professional. Sure, sure. Uh, and you know, you want to implement it, yet you feel like you have to let some of that stuff go uh, in, order to, in order to deliver. So what do you do? Hmm. So let's see. So in this case, um, the company has done, I assume, its research and, and the, the UX team or someone has done some user interviews to understand that uh, the company needs or the users want uh, a green button and a red button. They want the option. Perhaps this was part of the roadmap. Um, and and maybe that's something we can assume then that, that that was the right decision. And we definitely need to have the red and the green together. It's interesting because I just mentioned something part of the roadmap. I'm, you know, this is something maybe think about is these – there are two different types of feature requests, right? There's a feature request that you know well in advance that you know at some point maybe MVP was red – and we knew uh, phase, you know, uh, phase two, MVP two, <laughs> MVP three, Gag all, me. Of, all those things, MV, MV, all the MVPs. Um, you've got all your MVPs laid out <laughs> in advance. And so you knew MVP two was going to be uh, a green button. You know, the question there is, you know, obviously, if you know that that two is coming, um, how do you set yourself up so that you can add a second button later? So but let's assume this is a different type of request which was a last-minute request. You did, uh, your MVP was red. You assumed everybody would be happy with red. You never thought in a million years you'd want green, and suddenly users came back and said, God, what's what's up with you? You didn't put, you didn't add a button for the green the green balls? What are we going to do with red balls? We've got to have green balls too. It's Christmas after all. It is true. Um, so in that case, you, those are maybe the two types of things. The thing I, I guess, like this is where, you know, we've talked in the past about the uh, coming storm. Remember, and maybe was that one of our first or second Boy, episode? Oh, yeah, it's the first episode. Um, and how to prepare for that, and maybe there were indicators and things that you can keep an eye out for. And these are all things that would have happened obviously before someone came to you and said, "I want a green ball." But I'm just kind of thinking, you know, laying some context out and seeing, thinking about this. The thing that I think about more often than not is, um, in larger companies, at least, there tends to be different teams. And those different teams have different responsibilities, right? You might have yeah, a product yeah. team who's in charge of managing the product and the features and those things. You've got an engineering team who's responsible for building it in a performant and secure way um, and, and those types of things. And those they might not be the same people. So I guess in, in this case, if let's assume that we're working for like a big giant company. Um, perhaps that person that's asking for the new feature is not actually your boss. Is it possible to go to your boss and say, look, we know that this is not right. 
and say, we, we really need to fix the code base to make it scalable because what happens when someone says later, I want to add a blue button, a blue ball? Yeah. You know, maybe nobody's going to want blue balls, but, you know, let's <laughs> turquoise balls. Maybe that's better. No blue balls. But anyway, somebody at some point will probably ask for a different color, right? And so that might be a good way to sell this back and say, listen, we, we need to build this in such a way that's scalable because this goes back again to our conversation on MVP, right? Let's assume Red was your MVP. Should the way we built that first MVP be the foundation, the first floor of our skyscraper, right? Do we yeah. want to build our skyscraper and the rest of this code off of that if we knew that that was our, our sort of test, our experiment? Yeah. Or should we take the time now, because now we know people are asking for different options, to then build it in such a way that makes it scalable and configurable so that we can easily build new things and release much faster later, Right, so it's sort of this toss-up. I think is is where you would come down and say, "Look, we can copy and paste the code for the red ball, change the variables to green, have two separate code bases that do essentially the same thing, and that could be very fast." But we're going to end up with a mess once we have you know thirty six colors. Sure. Right. So that's not going to make us faster in the long run. Being fast today won't make us faster next year, but being slightly slower today and taking our time will make us faster next year. And so it all depends on where you stand, I think, in your company. But if you've got some if you've got the ability to maybe influence another team, these are these are some things, some tactics you could you could follow or get somebody who who could influence that team to help, you know, sell the fact that, you know, we need to build this in a better way. We shouldn't just be building a bunch of garbage. I think, yeah, you made some really good points there. Um, I think one of the biggest things that jumped out to me when you were explaining, you know, how to approach a situation like this is it's all about the context Mm -hmm. you are in with your team, your situation. Maybe you have reasons internally in the company that you need to make certain technology decisions for cost reasons, for pricing reasons. But there's also in your own team, there are non-negotiables that every team should discuss and they shouldn't be they shouldn't be things that um greatly hinder the ability for them to uh, produce they should be things that they focus on as they're building whatever they're building so that they can improve them over time and because mm-hmm. we don't have super super clear standards and you know a standards body for how people should do this kind of thing and you're not you're not audited by the government when you're building software to say, you know, hey, you're not following Scrum well enough or something weird like that. That doesn't exist. So it's those non-negotiables, that working agreement, that team charter needs to be in place or else you're going to be in a situation where you really don't have a strong opinion about why it is that your architecture is in disarray. You don't have a strong statement, a strong story as right. to what will make it better. What right. do we need to do? You just have do? a feeling. Right? You just have just a like, feeling. I feel it's wrong. It doesn't feel right, but you can't sell a feeling. You can't influence a team because you have a bad feeling, right? People are going to want data. They're going to want information. They want reasons, hard, solid evidence. Why is this wrong? Exactly. Um, you know, I think about like the team we were on. We, we, we interviewed Brittany, that team. Um, we had principles, right? We're mm-hmm. going to build the software in the right way, right? We're going to take a step back. And ask ourselves, is this correct? Is this the right way to do it? Does this is this a solid foundation for the next thing? You know, I also I think about this idea though, going back to 
talking about with Artie Karai about the, the learning release, right? Is this an opportunity to maybe build something like, you know, in this case, maybe we didn't have the solid evidence that people want the green button. Mm-hmm. It's something that came from some executive, right? And remember Artie mentioning how the executive generally doesn't know what they're talking about. They're not, they're not on the ground doing the work. And so they're too far removed. They're just filtered. Everything they hear is filtered through 15 different layers of people mm-hmm. until it's all rosy. Different yes men. Right, exactly. So in this case, this may be an opportunity to say, well, we know we're not really sure if people are going to want the green. Let's build it in a way that allows us to easily take it out if we decide that this isn't right. You know, nobody's pressing the green button after six months. So, you know, maybe this was a bad uh, decision. Let's rip it out. Let's take it out. Um, So, again, you know, it all kind of comes back, I think, like you said, to this idea of the context. I also think a lot about you know, Tom Griever, right? We we interviewed him a while back because there's so many references today, Derek. This I think a lot about him too. Uh, um, but Tom Griever, his ideas in articulating design decisions, you know, it was about selling design ideas, but it, it, the same thing holds true for selling any idea, right? Which is why we wanted to talk to him because it isn't just design. It's, it's anybody on the software team. Yeah. And I think about his ideas, you know, it was finding allies, finding people who can help influence if you think you can't do it on your own. Um, you know, it's it's backing up your decision with the data. There's another really interesting thing that I loved in his book, which was when you ask the question, "Do you are you sure you want to do this?" It's explaining the negatives and saying you are comfortable with assuming these risks. This is what you were agreeing to if you decide to do that this way, right? So if in this case, you know, they've come to you and they've said, "We want the green button." And you say, all right, we're going to have to build this so that, you know, we, we can reuse the code and share the give the option for red or green and it's all cleaner and everything else. And they say, no, 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 no. That's too much work. Just copy and paste the code. Just have two completely separate code bases, one for green, one for red, and be done with it and push it to production tomorrow. And you can say, okay, we can do that. No problem. If we do that, X, Y, and Z will end up happening. This is what you're agreeing to. You know, I that approach could work in a sense that they'll have the responsibility to say yes or no, I agree with that, but they would not feel any pain when that thing comes true. And what I've seen is that when you do that kind of thing and you say, hey, I know this is going to happen, X, Y, Z. In fact, I did that uh, on my current team. We had a release I was pretty sure was going to go over, and I was like pretty concerned. So I sent an email back in June mm-hmm. about this concerns I had. All of them came true, every single one. Yeah. Um, well, not not maybe not the core one yet, but but yeah, essentially. Yeah, well, you know, this is where man, I don't maybe I'm just maybe I'm a slapdick and a slacker and all this, but at the end of the day, like you can only worry about so much, <laughs> you know. That's true. Like from my perspective, like if you say that and and they fight, what are your other options? Is to well, You're not going to win, right? Well, so it's... you could be pissed off about it or just let it go and just keep getting your paycheck. <laughs> and, uh, you know, or you can quit and find another job. I, I mean, I don't know. It's it's sort of maybe it's not that clean cut. But, um, you know, for me, it's like I, I've said my piece. And if you won't change your mind and I can't sway you, then whatever. We'll just fix this again and I'll just keep getting a paycheck, you know. Well, it sucks. Like if your team does shit work and you say – Hey, I need more time to, you know, refactor this XYZ thing or I can't build it the way I want to build it. Well, you do shit work. So like I'm not gonna trust you, first mm-hmm. of all, to do it right. And so it's your team has to have proven itself to be uh like mentally stable 
uh, thoughtful, yeah. forward thinking, and achieve the goals they're setting out for you in a reasonable with a reasonable amount of uh, communication around if you like can't make the date or whatever they set. But to me, it's like it's all on the team to set up, and that's why the the kind of team structure, the working agreement the team has on how like the non-negotiables they have at mm-hmm. uh, what they do it's not really up to product or business or right. well, it to be. say yeah they don't yeah. they're not going to tell like the I, i'm not going to go tell the the contractor how to build my house exactly yeah. like which boards right. to use like right. that's his job yeah. um but there's this lack of trust this lack of uh this uh, knuckleheadship on this on the <laughs> developer side you know yeah. that you know kills that trust yeah you know, it's interesting because I, um, I had a meeting a couple of weeks ago and I, I actually said something very similar to that, you know, well, I didn't say like, you know, you wouldn't tell a contract. I, what I said was, you know, we have the software team and the software team cares about how to build something. And the products team job is to understand like the features and figure out a roadmap for when the software team can implement those things. And it's up to the software team to figure out the best ways to implement them. Yeah. And they pushed back and they said, well, no, we need to worry about that because, you know, it's going to it's going to change our timelines and and all these other things. You know how we're going to do this. There might increase dependencies or change dependencies if they decide to build it a different way, which then affects the timeline later on. And that got me thinking. I was like, yeah, you know, that's actually kind of right. And again, it's not it's it goes back to this idea of collaboration, I think, is really Mm -hmm. the biggest thing. Right. If you've got a product team who's just constantly throwing stuff over the fence and saying, go build this as fast as possible, you know. It's not going to work. And the same with the engineering team. If they go out and just leave me alone, let me just build my stuff, it's not going to work, right? I think like that conversation made me think about this idea of separate responsibilities, but at the same time, it's a shared product. Yeah. You know, it's a shared set of just everything. It's just something that we all need to be working together. And I might have certain responsibilities and you might have certain responsibilities, but at the end of the day, those responsibilities are tied together. You know, and so it isn't just my stuff versus your stuff, and hopefully right. it comes together later. That's never going to work. It's we all need to be on the same page, and we all need to be aware of the limitations and the requirements, and you know the timelines and how much effort things will take, and why things should take longer than others, and things like that. So I think that's something. The other thing I'm just kind of going back to thinking about was what's the impact of some of these things, right? And is it worth doing something right? Every single time. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like if something provides very little value and is just for some really quick win, does that need to be perfect? Does it need to be the best, cleanest, you know, nicest code you've ever seen? Or can that be, you know, kind of janky and, you know, you assume a little bit of tech debt when you do that. But it was so small and insignificant that it wasn't that big of a deal. You'd never know the impact of the things you do with software. That's something I've realized over time. You really don't know how small the thing is. So if you mm-hmm. take shortcuts and you don't build in, like, say, you don't write logging for it, or you don't do this, or you don't do whatever, write tests, you know, like, say, you skip tests. I just want to do it janky. You don't know what that's going to turn into. It's like you're basically like... You know, you're planting a seed when you write a new class, a new function. You're writing a seed. You're planting a seed. Where that goes, you have no idea. Um, and so it's like, it's it's that oh. it's it's. But it, it that's in refining the the non-negotiable things that a team does. The essentially the internal culture of the team. I wanted to talk about culture though in a second, but 
Yeah, I, don't, I, I, I'm, I, do I think, think you have another another idea. Well, yeah. So I guess what I was just going to say was, you know, I, that's true. You certainly never know for certain, but you do have a relatively decent idea. And I think, you know, if if everything tries to be perfect, I think about this idea of not letting perfect get in the way of the good enough. You know, um, and I think from a usability perspective, from a UX perspective, I, I think about this all the time. If if as a UX designer, all I cared about was pixel perfection and having the best possible user experience and being completely inflexible in that and pushing everybody to move it over to the left two pixels every time, you know, at some point I'm not going to be included in conversations anymore and people are just going to do stuff to get it out there, right? Or I make everybody go back and do stuff that so often that the it, everything just gets delayed for weeks or months and the user never gets any of that stuff anyway, right? So I think about this like from a user UX perspective. When a UX uh, team is just so worried about perfection constantly and that's all they care about and they forget about mm. the fact that if this doesn't get released, the users don't see any level of value out of this thing, right? They may, you know, let's say a scale of 1 to 10, I don't know, 10 being perfect. They could have gotten a 10 value, but if we, you know, let something slide, maybe they got a seven value. If they didn't release it at all, it would have been a zero. So is seven better than zero, even though seven's not as good as 10? And so I think about that a lot too. And this is a little different because, you know, I think, you know, when you talk about code, it's, it's, everything's kind of foundational, whereas an interaction on one page might not ever, you know, change an interaction on another page. So maybe it's not apples to apples comparison. But I think about that a lot, this idea of perfection and, and where am I going to pick my battle? Some things I will put my foot down and I will not I will not flex on it. But some other things I'll say, you know, eh, whatever. What, what's easiest well, for the engineering team to build? Okay, we'll, we'll just do that. That's okay. It's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. Um, and I think it's that idea of – it goes back to culture, which I think is what you were about to say, but – no, I mean, you know, I don't. Maybe development's a little different. I mean, would the thing is, like, I, I, I do kind of agree with that in our space. The way we exist now, people who are hyper focused on the little nitpicky details of perfection in whatever you do, whether it's you have to have eighty percent code coverage or everything has to be pixel perfect, you have to apply all the things. You tend to get seen as someone who doesn't see the forest for the trees. Right, exactly. But what if what if doctors did that? They're like the impact of what they do is so so strong that they can't take any they can't take any like they can't ever not wash their hands. So it's those are that's their inherent process. The thing I wanted to talk about culture ties into that. Well, hold on, wait before you before we move on that. I do want to say like to me like you know the idea of washing your hands like a doctor right. That's not an insignificant thing, right? It sounds insignificant, but that is, you know, the easiest way to transfer germs into your body is to not wash your hands and stay. So I don't think like if you, you know, code coverage, I don't know really that how that translates to being a doctor. But I mean, to me, I think about like, um, you know, whether or not the light is like, you know, I don't know. 10 inches higher than it should be, or the table is slightly lower than it should be, or, or something like that. I think that's probably what I'm getting at when I, when I think about this, like, I, and I'm, I'm guarantee you there's things, if you talk to a doctor, they probably have a similar thing. And I, I don't think like washing your hands is obviously not an insignificant thing because the studies have shown how many people die from infections and all these things. So it's like, clearly it's significant. Um, but I, I'm sure there are other things like, 
you know, again, maybe 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 code coverage isn't well, isn't <laughs> as maybe it's more important than I, I don't think I really understand the whole idea of code coverage. But you know, that that's just maybe something I'm thinking about. Like I think about you know uh, something being off slightly, like a few pixels, or you know. And interaction almost. isn't perfect, but like the developer said, it was easier for them, and so we saved a sprint. So, I think in that case, like I, I'm, I'm willing to let it slide. But then there are other things that I just think are as critical as like washing your hands. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. Anyway, I, well, I think the thing that makes this tough is we don't all agree on what the wash your hands level stuff is. Right. With and so, yeah. and so when we go back and forth and like, no, that uh, code coverage is wash your hands level. And it's like, no, it's not. Like making sure you have the test for the critical functionality. But what if we miss one? All this kind of stuff is like, mm-hmm. okay, I get it. But like, is that wash your hands level or is that like moving the light level? You know, I mean, I, I, right. I, I get where you're coming from. The thing, the thing I wanted to mention about culture was you have your process. You have the thing everybody's agreed to follow. Step one, step two, step three. When the process breaks down and someone doesn't follow it, the culture is what's there as a safety net. The culture is there to protect the integrity of the work and the mm-hmm. team. And I think if we think of culture that way, it might uh, be easier for people to also, first of all, talk about culture as not something you can like write steps for. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it does kind of come down to if everything breaks down, how will we ensure we're still going to get what we need to get done done in a way that, you know, keeps all of us healthy and, and like not lose our minds? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think about this like with, uh, with when we talk about culture. To me, a good culture, everyone agrees on those things. They've got it documented. It's part of the onboarding process. And coming into that team, you might not agree with it, but at least you understand that that's what the expectation is, right? Code coverage is one of those things, or code coverage isn't. Maybe there's other things, right? And that all depends on the team, but those things are well documented so that someone can look back at the documentation or whatever and say, this is how we do it, and this is the process that we follow, and this is what's expected of the team, um, and when someone comes in and, and tries to disagree with it and, and they have a good reason to change it, then maybe the team agrees to change it and, and et cetera. But the, the, a good team culture has those things, you know, clear and upfront for everybody else to understand. And everyone's on the same page. And I don't think with a really great team culture, you run into these, you run into these types of, of problems. I, I think I, I agree to a degree. I think that the, um, the idea of writing down your culture, like we had a, a cultural like summit basically, which is funny because a girl with the last name Summit uh, set it up. Uh, I thought that was funny. But when we came out of it, a lot of the things that we had identified as our culture were not things that you could check off on a checkbox. They were things that were inherent to how you viewed a situation or a conflict or a problem and what what was what your um what you were going to actually do moving forward, like uh, almost like the feeling you were going to have going into that. So what I mean by that is, let's say we had code coverage as a process item. We say, we like say that's what we're going to do, 80% code coverage. That's like a, that's something you can tally up. Does all everything have 80% code? But what if one doesn't? What if one doesn't, it goes into production? Our culture tells us 
We care about ensuring all critical path items have automated validation, like something like that. But my favorite one that we came up with was we are all leaders. So that's that's right. a culture thing. This the, the code coverage thing isn't culture to me. That's like a, a checklist process thing. But that other thing, like how powerful is that? That could be so broadly applied to anything you're doing. You're in a meeting and somebody says something, you don't agree with it. I'm a leader. Hey, I, uh, I, I don't agree with that. I think, I think we really need to think more about this and we can't release because of these specific, like it could change the way a whole team, like a whole initiative goes just by those underlying things. So I think that yeah. that was the distinction I was kind of going for with that. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess that's, that's the point. Like you don't write down like everything like that necessarily, but the culture to me, at least the team culture, whether or not it's written down or not is, you know, we have a culture of documenting. You know, we mm. always document these things. Yeah. Right. And we always have this process or this is how we always think or whatever it is. And maybe they're not written down, but you're right. Like that idea of being leader, it's more abstract, but it always ties back to doing the right thing. And doing the right thing is based on some principles that someone set up. And hopefully they, those principles have been written down in some kind of documentation. Going back to the original example of the green button being a new thing if your culture is set up in a way that says you know like like in our case like we were we're all leaders you essentially give everyone permission to stand up and say this isn't right you yeah know, you you your culture is 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 creating a psychologically safe environment for people to speak up and not be afraid of being reprimanded for saying this is bad mm-hmm. um, and i think all of those things kind of lead back to that idea of influencing and you essentially give everyone permission to try to be influencers. And certainly sometimes there will be somebody who has to make, you know, make the final decision one way or another. Um, and I think that's where this is really tricky is, you know, who has the final say in how you do this? Does the engineering team get final say in what actually gets written? Does a product team have say in, in how much time the engineering ta- team has to do it? Um, who's in charge? You know, and I think, again, this goes back to your culture, your team. That's going to be completely different depending on who the team is. Yeah, it's that's so true, man. I think that, uh, you know, another analogy that I, I thought of for culture uh, that could illustrate the point I had was that, you know, let's say you're a kid and you're on the playground and someone just punches you in the face out of nowhere. There's two things I wanted to say about this. One how you react to that is your culture. How you react to being punched in the face. Do you punch back immediately? Do you step back and ask a question? What the hell, man? Why'd you punch me? Do you kick? Do you elbow? Um, And all of those individual things, those individual things are not culture. But the broader, do I react immediately Do I step back and assess the situation? We react immediately when a problem occurs. We step back and assess. Now I'm I'm placing us in the the place of a team. We do never respond with violence. We, you know, like that kind of thing is culture. And that is in, that is fed into people. It's fed into teams and they're taught these things. I think you're actually taught culture. 
And you're taught yeah. culture by the way people act around you, by the way your leaders act. If you, all of the leaders you've ever worked with always punched back, then you're going to think yeah. that that's what leaders do. Leaders yep. are the ones that I'm supposed to emulate, so I'm going to punch right back. Parents punch back, so the kids punch back, that kind of thing. Yep. That, yep. That's the that's the strongest yep. analogy I can think of for that. I think it's a great, great analogy. I, I totally agree with that. And I think that's one of those things like you're, you know, again, it goes back to the product side too, right? If the product side sees other product teams and their managers constantly fighting with the developers, that's what they're going to learn. That's what they're going to know. Coming in and throwing their weight around, trying to, trying to you know, uh, persuade everybody to do exactly what they want. Um, and but, but on the other end, if they have a really great product team and, and they see collaboration constantly and, you know, an engineering team involved from the beginning that understands at some point we'll have a green button, um, you know, they can build it right the first time and, and we can avoid all of this to begin with. And I right think, on. you know, again, to maybe tie this all back, the what do you do in this situation? I think it all depends on the context. It all depends on why you're doing it, who said it, where, what did, where is it coming from? Was there a reason why we decided to add a green button? What, how much time do we have? Can we change it? Is this a permanent thing? Is this a quick fix? Is this, you know, is the company going to go bankrupt if we don't get a green button added next week? You know, all these things can certainly change how the team decides to go about implementing that change. Um, and, you know, I think, of, again, about the other thing that Tom Griever said is this idea of empathy for your team. I think it's really important for a software engineering team to understand where the product team's coming from, why they're asking for what they're asking, and understand that context so that you can maybe help solution with them, right? So I think if you're a developer, that's really important. If you're on the product side and you're doing this, you know, those kinds of things, you got to explain and understand why, lead with why. You know, we're about to go bankrupt, and yeah. if we don't get a green button in there tomorrow, we're not going to have a job anymore. I guarantee you no developer yeah. is going to fight back and say, we have to do it the right way. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah so, exactly. Um, it, it all depends on the context. So I think if, if, you know, if you're a product manager, make sure that you're doing that, and if you're a developer, make sure you're, you're, uh, you're doing those other things. So, You know, and I just have one last thing. Uh, so talking through this thinking through the culture process difference and all these this this situation i'm starting to think that advice for situations like this may be kind of bullshit because it's not about what you do mm -hmm. it's about understanding who you are and who your team is and what the culture is for these kinds of situations are you the kind of team that jumps in immediately and says yes sir yes ma'am whatever you need you may be that culture, and that's your team. Mm -hmm. You could change the culture by injecting new actions and change it. It's hard to change because you actually have to do things that make people feel uncomfortable yeah. because they've never seen it or they haven't seen it in a long time. They haven't seen someone jump in and say, no, that's unacceptable. No, I don't care if the company's going out of business. We can't do it like this. Because there's a chance like all the planes could fall out the sky or all the, you know, every elevator could fall. Like we're not cutting corners. If you want to cut corners, you hire a different team. Those kind of strong-willed people may not be in your team. Your culture just may not be like that. Yeah. And so I think it's more about like if you come out of this with anything, it's think about who you are as a team, who you are as a person and the different situations you get yourself into. Why do you make the decisions you make? Why don't you fight back? Or why do you? Yeah. And it's not wrong or right. 
in a lot of ways, in a lot of cases, it just leads to different results. And yeah, you know, uh, and, and also too, man, I would say like, you can't be afraid to just f- say, maybe this isn't the right job for me. Maybe this isn't the right team. Maybe I need another job. You know, maybe I want to go somewhere else with people respect certain things and versus others. Um, sure. You know, I think that's a perfectly acceptable conclusion to come to in some of these situations that this kind of thing is happening constantly. You know, maybe you just can't take it anymore and, you know, find another place. I think that's okay. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people need people like you. And I'm talking to you, listener. Oh, they're talking to me. Because, you know, yeah, I agree. I, 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 I am talking about you, too. You, yeah, they could use more people <laughs> just, like Jeremy. Um, oh, man. Well, that's cool. Well, that's it, man. I don't right. have anything else to say about it. This was the this was the most um, the most uh, referenced uh, or mo- episode where we referenced the most other of our other. I can't talk today, Derek. This is the episode <laughs> where we referenced more of our other episodes than any other episode. <laughs> it was maximally self-referential. You know what's interesting? I uh, was thinking about this the other day. Um, I was on a I did a talk with uh, ADP List about. Um, like my my path to becoming a designer and all those things. And I talked about the podcast, not because I was trying to promote the podcast, although that was certainly part of it. But part of it was just talking about how much I've learned by talking to all these other really smart people. And the the gist of the episode, of, of not the episode, the gist of my talk was that every step of the way I learned that I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I knew. You know, yeah. and even when I got to be, you know, senior sta- senior staff, UX architect, blah yeah. blah blah, sounds really fancy. I'm still like interviewing people like Tom and Artie and all these other people who are giving me insights and things that I didn't expect. And I found that doing this podcast, I've learned so much just from talking to these random people um, and interviewing them and stuff. And it's been really fun. Anyway, maybe you'll learn something too, listener, if you go back and listen to all those episodes. If you haven't, so, <laughs> yeah, anyway, buy a sticker and buy a sticker. And like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And most importantly, Derek, what do we want them to do? Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so that they get a free song from yours truly. Yeah, Did right. I nail it? Yeah, it was perfect. Thank <laughs> you, sir. I love it. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, oh, also, Retro Time Pod on Twitter, at Retro Time Pod. Check us out. We're tweeting. I tweeted at Elon Musk the other day, Derek. Oh, uh, yeah, you're right. About our episode uh, about uh, manufacturing versus software. Uh, and I was like, you know, Elon, if you want to come on the show and talk about taking a software mindset to manufacturing, we'd love to have you or something like that. I can't remember what I said. So far, no response, which is heartbreaking. He'll get back to us. Yeah, eventually. He's busy building rockets. Give it time. Yeah, once once he gets, yeah, he's, uh, his head's in the clouds. As well. <laughs> Literally. Uh, once he gets to Mars, he'll, uh, I'm sure we'll talk. <laughs> yeah. Signal will take a little while to get here that's unless right. he uses that hyperspace. All right, y'all. Well, that's it. That's all I got. Check us out on RetroTimePodcast.com. Get yourself some stickers. RetroTimePodcast.com slash stickers. Get your five-star review in there. Derek will write you a song. Check us out on RetroTimePod on Twitter, LinkedIn, all that stuff. Hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. You can also check us out at RetroTime at Geocities.net backslash <laughs> eBay sign-in. All right. Thanks, everyone. Take it easy. See ya. Um, I do want to call something out. Um, last episode, we had uh, a little discussion, I'll say. Maybe it was an argument. Maybe it was kind of violent. Um, you, you decide, listener. Uh, it was between Jeremy and I, and it was around whether uh, starships can be created <laughs> using replicators. <laughs> and uh, a distinguished listener named Dustin Gaspard um, 
actually an old colleague of mine, uh, young man, but yeah. old colleague. Old colleague. Yeah, uh, yeah. He responded with an explanation. Oh, all um, right, all right, good. All right, so I'm going to read you the explanation, and up. then... Uh, and it's it gets funny funnier as we go. So the shipyard replicators needs need more power than the shipyard in space could provide until Voyager large ships large starships couldn't take off from a planet. You couldn't build them from a planetary replicator. They only fly in space. Okay. Ah. So I was I was my, this warmed my heart. So I said it was that day. They say to our surprise, this Grinch's heart. Grew three whole sizes. <laughs> and he responded, not with ha-ha or Merry Christmas or great to talk to you, but it's, but he responded, seriously, though, the power needed to replicate grows exponentially with the size of the thing you're replicating. It's why replicators are so small on ships. The shipyards replicate modular components. Replicators also don't replicate qubits of storage. Most of what happens at shipyards... It keeps going. Is a main computer development, software and hardware integrations, testing, app administration, and trouble tickets from operating ships. Oh, wow. Dustin, that's unreal. I, w- I want to know, Dustin, uh, if you're listening, where where he got that? Was that from like one of those encyclopedia, Star Trek encyclopedia books? I have a feeling because <laughs> he responded so quickly that uh, he just knew this. Oh, I love it. He's like, I mean, this is next level stuff here. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, you know, because um, the other thing I was thinking about, like, you never see them replicating, like, physical things other than food, mm-hmm. and drinks. I guess you know they're replicating like the teacup when it when they ever get they whenever they get tea. But I don't. Maybe I'm imagining it or not misremembering, but I don't ever remember them replicating like a, a hammer or a wrench or a face. No, it was all food. It was, it was food. always food, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh, maybe they did once or twice. I, maybe I in like uh, remember, Enterprise. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah. okay. Whatever. Um, so we got to have Dustin on to have a full uh, uh, Star okay. Trek. That's a great uh, would it what is it happen? would it work? How does it work? Uh, discussion on all the software. He would be the perfect person to talk to about that. I love it. That like might a star, be like there, a Star Trek our first retro listener bite. listener uh, letter. <laughs> yeah, I think it actually is. I think it actually is, oh. and it was. It wasn't about the topic. <laughs> At all, it was just about Star That's Trek. That's all right. I'll answer, oh, I like I'll answer him. as many emails as you can send, uh, listener, about uh, about Star Trek. So, I love it. All, all right, right, brother. Well, thanks for thanks for writing in, Dustin. We appreciate it. We truly do. <laughs>